Hey, Rachel. What's bothering you, Miles? Time travel. Can't help you there, buddy. I mean, I know going back in time to mess with historical figures is a time-honored tradition, but Marvel's usually more about the dark futures. What are you talking about? I mean, in the fifth issue of Fantastic Four, Doom sends the FF back to the 18th century. How's that work out? Then Grimm becomes Blackbeard. What?! I'm Rachel Edgerton. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to the 67th episode of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, outs, and retcons of our favorite superhero soap opera. So we are coming back to the New Mutants after the Mutant Massacre. They were probably the least scathed. Can you be scathed or just unscathed? I'm not entirely sure. I would expect so. Well, anyway. Well, yeah, because something can be scathing. Well, there you go. They were the least scathed by scathing things of all of the teams who were involved. I should also note, um, with regards to the cold open, we veered a little bit away from X-Men there, which seems appropriate because the Fantastic cast, who do something very similar to what we do, but with regards to the Fantastic Four, actually did a really fun episode recently, which I say kind of self-servingly because it was riffing off us, including a cold open, and you should go listen to it if you like what we do, but really wish it were about the Fantastic Four, because it's a fun podcast, they do interesting stuff, and now there is a very smooth transition point from one to the other. There you go. Just, you know, come back here also, because otherwise we'd miss you. Yeah, and I believe actually that David Wynn, who's our house artist at Explain the X-Men, has guest hosted on that before, so you can hear his splendid voice there occasionally as well if you go through their backlog. Yes, indeed. Anyway, so yes, we, uh, like I said, are coming back to the New Mutants. And this is a weird one. This is a great and weird one. It's sort of the New Mutants cross-time caper. In fact, this story arc really reads to me like a sketch for the cross-time caper. Uh, Yeah, the cross-time caper, for those unfamiliar, was a famous Excalibur story that a lot of people loved and a lot of people hated, where they keep going through time and space and reality kind of almost at random and dealing with very strange things. Well, it's not entirely random, but they're definitely hopping between pasts and dark futures. And before we, you know, loose them in the space-time continuum, maybe we should check in with where they have been in the most recent, well, at least 616 present, where we last left them. Yeah, and I was actually thinking we could kind of check in with each of the characters in general, because we have a very, very large cast in this book. We have nine characters. I mean, for a large portion of the book, it's the same nine characters. And as much as Chris Claremont, the writer, does a very good job of giving each of them their kind of day in the sun, especially Sunspot, because that charges his powers, you know. At the same time, it can be easy to kind of lose track of where everyone's been if they hadn't had a focal issue in, like, a year. So let's just go down the list. Um, Some of the new mutants are really getting their stuff together after the trauma they've been through, specifically the part where the Beyonder killed and resurrected them all in Secret Wars 2. Others are not doing so well. So let's start out with the ones who are doing pretty well. Well, let's see. Danielle Moonstar, Mirage, she is the co-team leader with Cannonball, and she has been... Honestly, she has been the New Mutant who I think has held her head together best through the last several years. The New Mutants have been through a lot, and she has stayed fairly firm in her purpose, direction, and identity. When the New Mutants went off to the Massachusetts Academy, she was the only one who stayed. She has been navigating the complicated cultural territory of being very rooted in her Cheyenne heritage, while also a Norse Valkyrie, with, you know, fairly effectively and fairly mindfully, and is, is I think, coming out fairly consistently ahead on that. Rain Sinclair, Wolfsbane, the cutest new mutant, she's actually done pretty well lately. I mean, she had a rough start. She grew up in a horribly bigoted, extremely religious, in a very bad way, community, and was told she was, you know, a tool of the devil and a sinner and stuff like that. And she's finally started to get over that, especially since a recent visit to Scotland, where she confronted the man who raised her, Reverend Craig. So we're starting to see Rain's innocence and faith shine through a little bit more and get past some of that fear and bitterness. So that's kind of cool. Doug Ramsey, Cypher, who has spent the first several years of New Mutants really trying to find a place on the team as one of the New Mutants with a non-combat-specific ability, but the only one who regularly gets sidelined because of it. Right. He's the universal translator, basically. And he's been struggling to find an identity, but he's really been sort of coming into his own. And he's been doing that largely as, I think, in a lot of ways, the conscience of the team, but also in more specific combat situations and more physically by not only doing team-ups with Warlock, but more recently via a couple of annuals actually physically merging with him which is every bit as um, subtextual as it sounds. Yes. And then we have Sam Guthrie, Cannonball, the other co-leader of the team. And he's been doing a little bit better at finding a balance between sort of his perceived obligations toward his family and toward the team, and also toward becoming his own man. You know, finding a relationship with Lila Cheney, really enjoying going out and exploring all these strange worlds, while not losing his roots, not losing his connection to the place where he grew up and the people he cares about. You know, as we're talking about this, it occurs to me, we've been talking a lot about the 
overarching themes of the different books in the X line. And I've been thinking a lot about that as Marvel's been announcing its post-Secret Wars lineup, and as I've been looking at a lot of really just the current comics climate. And I find with New Mutants, and really with the X titles in general, that I'm less likely to label titles as having themes than characters. Oh, that's interesting. And so with each of these guys, I feel like there's been a very specific arc and a very specific theme and a direction they've been moving to. So for Danny, for Mirage, it's, it's very much about balance. For Wolfsbane, it's about confidence. For Doug, for Cypher, it's about agency. And for Cannonball, Sam Guthrie, it's about self-direction and freedom. Yeah, I think you're completely right on all those counts. But a lot of the other characters are really not adjusting so well, so let's talk a little about them. And you know, actually, I would say a lot of these guys are mirrors of that, folks who are looking towards the same things, because the first person on your list of the ones who are having rough times is Ilyana, speaking of that theme of balance. Magic, yeah. Yeah, she's a mutant. She's also a sorceress. These things interact, but how interconnected they are really varies narratively and structurally. And she's very worried about being subsumed by the darkness and also about maintaining control over Limbo, which is the demonic realm that she rules. You know, teenager problems. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Just just your average American teenager, Russian-American, demonic, sorceress, teenager. Mutant. Yes. So Roberto da Costa, Sunspot, you know, as much as he's all happy-go-lucky and has this bravado all the time, I think there's he's a real... He's not happy-go-lucky at all, dude. Well, he, uh, he can he's be. Boisterous. He's very Yes, boisterous, I suppose, that's, is a that's better different. term. But that's different. He's intense. He is. He's an intense kid. A lot of that comes from some darkness that's really been building within him ever since he found out that his father was like a corrupt businessman who then went to work for the Hellfire Club. Roberto often feels like his teammates and the people around him are not being brave enough, that they're just being cowards by not diving headfirst into every situation, because that's all he knows how to do in this very complex and nuanced world that he's really not prepared to accept the details of. At the same time, he has a lot of trouble confronting his own fears and his own uncertainties. He's a very young kid, he's 13 or 14, with a lot of internalized machismo and a lot of very, very sort of strict ideas of what heroism means and what its cultural context and payoff should be, that often confront very directly with his own instincts and with his own experiences, and he has a lot of trouble reconciling those. And I think that conflict is something that is going to continue to shape the character really throughout his life, but especially intensely in one of the issues that we're going to be looking at here. Absolutely. And next up on that list is Warlock, and Warlock is kind of happy-go-lucky. See, I would, I would apply that to him. Warlock is in some ways the most innocent of the new mutants, but in some ways he's the one with the past that's most actively and literally chasing after him. He is an alien. He is from the Technarchy. And his father is trying to kill him, as is the way of their people. It is basically a matter of time before he shows up on Earth and tries to kill Warlock and probably succeeds because Warlock doesn't want to fight him and doesn't really have the ability or capacity to. Again, that's a conflict that's going to come to a head in the issues that we're looking at today. Amara Aquila Magma Well, I put her in the list of people who aren't doing so hot, mainly because she hasn't been written so hot. Chris Claremont has always had trouble finding interesting things for Magma to do, almost since she was introduced, and that does continue. We get to see her doing a little bit better, a little bit more interestingly this time around, but her biggest conflict has been not having anything going on, not having any kind of character growth. Yeah, I feel like once she got over that initial push of culture shock, she kind of got relegated to the background. Totally. Speaking of characters who've been relegated to the background on and off since their inception, Shen Koiman is Karma, and we most recently saw her lose her siblings in the Mutant Massacre. Whether they were killed or kidnapped, we don't know. She has been on and off the team since the start. She was the original team leader. She disappeared and was believed dead for more than a year, I think. And she, you know, was found, came back, had kind of a reckoning, and since then has just kind of been hovering to the margins. She is a character who's really interesting, but who's never really felt like she had a place on this team. She's considerably older than the rest of the characters. She is, I think, significantly closer in age, and in fact overlaps more age-wise with the adult X-Men. And she's also a really unlikely superhero. Like, I always sort of wonder with Karma why she's there. Yeah, it feels like she's sort of aging out of the team. Oh, God, it's going to be like, you can't do that on television. They're going to send her to New York to sell pencils on the street. Oh, geez, that would be a really strange miniseries. I swear to God, that was a thing. I remember in college having a conversation with someone about this show, like multiple people our age about this show. And it was was a really, it was a short-lived show on Nickelodeon starring Alana, like Alanis Morissette was in the last season as a little kid. This really sounds like something that I'm making up or telling out of a dream, but I swear it was real. It, it totally was. And um, and one of the conceits, one of the weird things that just really stuck with me from it is that it was a show whose main characters were kids. And they only like they only did this like in two episodes. They'd cut to it occasionally. But the conceit was that when you aged out of the show, they sent you to the streets of New York to sell pencils on a street corner. 
<laughs> That's terrible. It was incredibly disturbing. It was funny and, and like it fit that sort of kid show surrealism, but I swear that was a thing. Oh, man. So that's what's going to happen to Karma. Uh, very, what I'm saying. very likely. Or possibly she'll come out and lose a leg and end up joining a bunch of renegade mutants on the ruins of Utopia. One of those. Also that, yes. Yes. So That didn't happen on, the, you can't do that on television. That actually is what happened to Karma and X-Men, just to clarify. If you can't do that on television, had had another season, though, I tells you. And lastly, there is the headmaster of the school, Magneto, since Xavier is off in space, and dude cannot catch a break. It sucks so bad to be Magneto. It does, and we're going to get to that a number of times through this episode. So, most recently what's happened that has set us up for what's going on here is, of course, the Mutant Massacre, what we covered in the last couple of episodes of our show. And the New Mutants, during all of this, despite the fact that Magneto had basically confined them to quarters during the danger, Ilyana and Shan had gone off to find Shan's family, being worried about them since all these mutants were being targeted. They didn't come back. The rest of the New Mutants went after them. They did all reunite, but were then attacked by Warlock's father, Magus, who had been lurking on Earth for a number of years. And that's why you always leave a note. Seriously, because Magneto has no idea whether they're alive or dead, and the last we saw, they teleported away from Magus in a panic, and when Ilyana teleports away in a panic, since her abilities are only somewhat controlled to begin with, especially in terms of time... That tends not to go so well. It occurs to me as I like pause to cough up a hairball in the corner over here that I should probably qualify that I am recording this with a hell of a head cold and there's also an air show going on outside. So if our volume is vacillating a little bit more than usual, I mean, Kyle is trying to compensate, but there is only so much one man can do against that many forces of nature. Yes, indeed. Although I have every faith, every confidence. Yes. So, okay, let's jump into the four issues we're going to be covering today, those being New Mutants number 47 through 50. So we're starting in New Mutants 47, My Heart for the Highlands, or the issue where the New Mutants go back in time and flirt with Robert the Bruce. Yeah. So, okay, I mentioned that this book starts to feel like itself again right here, and part of why that is is because we have all this random weird stuff going on, the New Mutants just flitting about to all these bizarre situations and just sort of trying to figure out how to deal with it and what's right, and it's weird, and I love it. I mean, I did just summarize the entire issue right there. The New Mutants go back in time and flirt with Robert the Bruce. The end. There's a little bit more to it. They don't significantly alter the course of history. There's no epic battle or anything. They go back in time and flirt with Robert the Bruce, and he and Rain Sinclair totally hit on each other. Perhaps we should go into slightly greater detail. Should we, though? Yes. All right. Again, we're taking off at the end of the mutant massacre. Magic has just frantically teleported away the kids, and Sunspot wakes up in limbo. And remember, Sunspot is really scared of Limbo. He is completely freaked out about it. He's the only one conscious, and he comes to with the rest of his teammates unconscious and a bunch of demons carrying Ileana away. And so he's like, crap, they're going to kill her so they can take over Limbo, and then they're going to kill all of us. What am I supposed to do? I can't wake up my friends, so I have to do something. Which gives us the ultimate and repetitive, like, slapstick scenario of, oh my god, someone's about to get stabbed with the soul sword. No, it's okay, it's the soul sword. It makes things better. Yes, everyone seems to forget that, right. because that indeed is what Sunspot stumbles upon after sort of reluctantly deciding to rescue Ilyana Rasputin, who he doesn't really like very much, who he's pretty scared of. I mean, at one point he actually says, you know, this would be easier if she were just nicer, which is ironic because he's kind of a jerk. Yeah, it's true, but he would never see that about himself. Oh, Roberto. And so, yes, Ilyana gets stabbed through with a soul sword, which kind of restores her in this realm that is her, if by the sword that is her. And she uh, is nonetheless genuinely touched that Sunspot went to uh, to rescue her, even if it turned out to not be necessary. Unfortunately, Magus is able to follow them to Limbo. Warlock's been trying to convince them to, you know, port him back to Earth so Magus can just kill him and they'll be safe. They're all like, no, no, you're being ridiculous. It doesn't actually matter because Magus is able to follow them through. And Ilyana teleports them out in a panic. They fight bravely, they do their best, but she ends up just having to port them away blind. At which point we get our first sad Magneto interlude. And we get these periodically through this. Man, remember the X-Files episode, War of the Coprophages? Oh, absolutely. So you remember the Scully bits? Oh yeah, Mulder keeps calling Scully, and she's just doing increasingly strange, but still sort of well, normal she's, things. Well, she's doing super domestic, super mundane stuff, but it just sort of gets weirder and weirder. So it goes from like bathing her dog to just you know, eating ice cream in front of the TV to like dissembling and cleaning her gun. It all seems like it should be meaningful, but none of it quite is, and that's kind of the running gag. This feels like that, but not funny. Right, because, you know, okay, so here's Magneto. He's done his best after taking over for his best friend and longtime rival, Charles Xavier, to do right by these kids. But he's had to deal with the freaking Beyonder showing up and, like, psychologically destroying his charges. He's had to deal with a bunch of Morlocks getting massacred and his students disappearing in the middle of that. In addition to other, you know, more minor but still significant traumatic events occurring, none of which are his fault. He's sad Darren Morgan Magneto. He totally is. 
Eric Lencher's Final Repose? I would watch that. Oh man, now I'm really sad. And so, yeah, Moira McTaggart has been taking care of all of the severely injured Morlocks, many of whom are dying. She's convinced the new mutants, including, you know, her practical daughter, Rain, are dead. But Magneto is just refusing to believe it. He says he's lived his life in despair, but he's learned hope since coming here and he's trying to hang on to it. And God, poor guy, his intentions are so good and he is so helpless here. Well, he has one bit of evidence that the new mutants are still alive, and that is that Brightwind, Daniel Moonstar's magical winged horse from Asgard. God, I love comics. Me too. Is still around and is still doing fine. And they've got a psychic link and we've seen Danny get in trouble before and have Brightwind freak out. So the fact that Brightwind is still relatively chill probably means that at least Danny is still alive and if not unharmed, then still relatively okay on the scale of things. Now, as for where the New Mutants themselves are at this point, after once again teleporting frantically away from Magus... Well, it's not where I was expecting. We're definitely somewhere around early 14th century Scotland. Yes, we are. Or at least early 14th century Scotland as seen through the filter of Marvel Comics, which is roughly as historically accurate as the movie Braveheart. Take from that what you will. Yes, indeed. Can we talk briefly about how backwards time travel is always hilarious because it's always so wrong? It really is. I mean, I don't know a lot about 14th century Scottish history. In fact, I know practically nothing about it aside from the brief Wikipedia trawling I did while we were writing this episode. But I'm sure they got at least half the details wrong. I'm waiting and I'm really excited for when we get to the further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, because then I can just rip into that because I know Victorian England. Yes. That one I can go into. But man, yeah, ancient imaginary historical pretend Scotland. And the New Mutants arrive to see one horseman in particular being chased by a bunch of other horsemen. Being as how they are the New Mutants, they are all about fighting for the underdog, so they help fend off the assailants and they rescue the lone rider. And Rain recognizes him from her textbooks, which is really remarkable considering the general quality of likenesses likely to have passed down over that length of time as Robert the Bruce. You may remember Robert the Bruce from Scottish history, where he basically led the Scottish in a rebellion against the English and won. A little bit before that, he worked with William Wallace. He ended up running Scotland for quite a long time. He was Again, kind of a big Braveheart deal. is aggressively wrong. This is not my field. You know, just go listen to the British History Podcast. I'm sure they've covered this. If they haven't, they will. Yes, indeed. They are accurate. They're also good people. So Robert the Bruce is like, hey, thanks, strange children with weird demonic powers. You want to come back to my place and hang out? Wow, that's a line. Here's the thing. He totally thinks that they're good guys. The British think they're demons, but he thinks they're good guys because they're pretty. I don't remember that part. He's really specific. He's like, yeah, no, if you were demons, you totally wouldn't be this fine looking. Like you turned into normal looking people. So obviously you're good guys. Huh. That's a very strange way of looking at Robert things. Robert the Bruce is really shallow. He is really shallow, but he's also kind of awesome, at least in this. So, you know, Roberto and Rain were the ones that really jumped into battle to save him. Roberto, because he's never met a fight he didn't like. And Rain, because she was like, hey, the people being chased are wearing tartans. Therefore, they're my people. Therefore, let's make this happen. And he's like, one of you has the same name as me, and one of you is my countryman. Bros for life! So, like, he gives them traditional Scottish, presumably, garb, and he gives Rain this really pretty emerald necklace. And it's actually really adorable, because Rain is just, like, blushing her face off the entire time. This is another one of those places where, again, we're sort of outside of our historical, cultural, and academic bailiwicks. So, if anyone wants to pick apart, like, what the actual tartans are in this, or the actual historical indicators, and write a long, nitpicky comment in response to this post elucidating on that stuff, we would love that. We'd be into that. I wore a lot of plaid in the 90s, but I was just sort of clan McGrunge. So, yeah, I mean, and they talk for a bit, and Bobby's like, uh, I actually love Bobby in this issue. I'm just going to read this. We've no way of returning to our own time. We're stuck here. I say we make the best of that. We've a noble cause to fight for, great deeds to be done. Think, friends, of what we might accomplish. And this reminds me a lot of when he was in Asgard and was basically saying the exact same thing. What he wants is a world where Hero is an acknowledged social class with status and recognition to match. Like, he wants to do good things, and he doesn't want to do them on a pay-for-play basis, but he wants recognition. He believes that, you know, while good works should be their own reward, they shouldn't be their only reward. You know, I mean, I, I can't fully fault that way of looking at things. But the New Mutants realize they kind of have to go. I mean, they have places to be. They need to fix things. They need to go back to Limbo to do so. And Magus is there. And Robert the Bruce basically talks Bobby down, gives him a speech, which I am not going to attempt to replicate here because we've talked about me and Miles and accents that we don't do. Basically saying, look, you're really brave, but being an actual leader means knowing that you don't just rush into battle for the sake of rushing into battle. Sometimes you have to make a tactical withdrawal. That's what I'm doing right now. If you join me, what we will be doing is hiding out together and not doing anything for a while. So, you know, you can do that. 
but this isn't what you're looking for. What you're looking for isn't something real. That's actually, I think, kind of the theme of this entire arc, which is that as a new mutant, but specifically as a teenager, what your job is, is to learn about the world, is to understand what you can later affect and understand that right now may not be the time that you're going to inherit the world. You're going to be the one making the decisions that will shape the future, but you're not there yet. And you have to take the steps to take these slow and frustrating and seemingly passive steps to get to the point where you can change the world. Now, the new mutants end up leaving. They head back to Limbo, and the coast appears to be clear, but when they're teleporting away, you know, back to the future, something goes wrong, and they're split up into two groups, which is one of the better ways to manage a party of nine. Yes, indeed. Conveniently enough, those are the next two issues, number 48 and 49. We'll start with number 48, Ashes of the Heart, which starts with a very familiar scene, namely our heroes in front of a great big rubbly kind of wall, with a bunch of portraits of various mutant characters we know and love, some of which have terminated banners diagonally over them. And the title of the issue conveniently across the top. I want to talk about this because this is a physical object. It's not just a title page. Like, it stays around after the title page. It's just in the ruins of the Xavier School, and it's not exactly, like, it looks like it should be a war room, but it's just sitting there in the rubble. Like, maybe it's a memorial, but it seems like it was put up by the bad guys. And it says Ashes of the Heart in big jaggedy letters. Like, who built this? Okay, so the way I look at it is that the different parallel universes have kind of different conventions. So, for instance, in Earth-616, the main universe, nobody ever stays dead. That's just sort of a thing. And in Earth-1610, the ultimate universe, horrifying, horrible things happen for really no reason. And, and everyone has gratuitous soul patches. Uh, yes, they do. Here we are in what the internet tells me is Earth-8720, a variant of Earth-811, Days of Future Past. And I think what you do in universes like that is you have big, dramatically placed lists of who's dead that the main characters can stand near. But the thing is, you were talking about physical rules of the universe. These are things that someone has to make, or do they just arise as natural features? Are they aspects of the landscape? Because I'm, like, imagining a sentinel, like, decoupaging this. Oh, man, now I'm just imagining a little baby sentinel doing sort of macaroni art of all the mutants that it's killed. Or maybe this is sort of the evolution of Hellfire Club Craft Night? I think so. Oh, man, I knew the Hellfire Club was trouble. So you mentioned this Dark Future is an Earth-811 spinoff, which means it's a sentinel-run future and almost all of the mutants are dead. Right, exactly. And so both of those things become clear because suddenly a bunch of sentinels attack. They see that there are these mutants that have been around, some of whom they thought were dead, but apparently not. They go to attack them, and the new mutants, as they start to fight back, are aided by people who look very familiar, but a lot older, namely future versions of Cannonball and Mirage. We should mention that the present new mutants who've ended up in this future are not the whole team. It's just Sunspot, Magma, Karma, and Wolfsbane. The other five members of the team have disappeared. Yeah, they don't know where they are. And so... They all start fighting off the Sentinels. It's kind of awesome. They actually see at least one Sentinel, which is painted up like Captain America, and one of the older New Mutants mentions, yeah, that's the Sentinel that killed Cap. Now it painted itself to look like him. Do they specify that it's the Sentinel that killed Cap? I thought they just specified that the Sentinels had started out going after mutants and then had gone after every single other superhuman, and it was insinuated. And see, see, for me, God, that's so evocative, because that's such a story hook. I mean, I think it's supposed to look like just a creepy thing like a war trophy, but it doesn't, because that would be like if it had his shield mounted. A sentinel who kills Cap and then paints itself to look like one, I mean, that's evocative. That's like, I want to hear the story of that sentinel. I want to see that sentinel realize that it's taken out something that matters and then do its awkward sentinel best to take Captain America's place and try to work out what he stood for and undo the future. I want, oh my god, I want a Days of Future Past where one of the sentinels repels. That would actually be amazing. Marvel, call me. Yeah, uh, and also delay Secret Wars so Rachel has time to write that because it would be rad. It doesn't have to be a Secret Wars story. It can be whatever. Okay. Well, anyway. You know where we live, I assume. So, meanwhile, speaking of tropes that keep coming back, we cut back to Magneto in the present in the main reality. And he's washing his corgi. No, he is actually going around, like, forlornly through the X-Mansion, tidying up the New Mutants' rooms. He just does not believe they won't return. And this time, it's not Moira McTaggart. It's Stevie Hunter who's like, dude, you have to accept that they're gone. Even horses, Magneto. Exactly. Even horses. But no, he's not accepting this. He's actually, it's kind of cool, he's going around using these little, like, metal robot things he's magnetically controlling to clean things up. He calls them widgets, which, of course, little metal things called widgets will be a big deal later in Excalibur. And this dude is trying so hard. I feel terrible for Magneto in this arc. But, you know, what can you do? What can he do? Because in the dark future, the Days of Future Past-esque future, Older Sam and Older Danny have taken the other new mutants to where they've been based out of. Which is actually Larry Trask and Stephen Lang's old Sentinel base. Which is great. I mean, they have learned a thing or two from present future Cyclops. I. It's time travel. Forget it, Jake. It's time travel. 
Uh, so yeah, that's, that's what they've been based out of. And we learn a little bit about what happened, which is, you know, kind of the familiar Days of Future Past story. Mutants started getting blamed for all the world's ills, and so the Sentinel Project was reactivated, and the super teams like the Avengers were sent after mutants, but things got out of hand because the Sentinels, like you said, Rachel, started seeing all superhumans as threats, and eventually started seeing everybody in the world as threats to this perfect social order, and just turned the world into a Sentinel-patrolled heap of rubble, essentially. The X-Men, it's implied, you know, in addition to the ones we saw on the sign are just straight out dead at this point or gone. Uh, the last surviving new mutants, or at least the last ones we're going to interact with, are Danny and Sam, and they are really bitter, Danny especially. Right. And as she sees the wolf Spain that we know and love, that especially hits home, and it quickly becomes clear that her reign died in her arms, the wolf Spain that she knew, you know, her closest heart friend. And so seeing this young reign is just salt in that wound. So, deaths as linchpins for dark futures and changes always fascinate me. Yeah, it's like that thing with the Justice Lords in Justice League Unlimited. Mm -hmm, Yeah, Flash as the heart of the team and that without him, they turn evil. Oh man, that's such a good arc. That's such a good show. It really is. I've got to say, much as I love Wolverine and the X-Men, I think Justice League and Justice League Unlimited are my all-time favorite superhero cartoons. That's fair. But thinking of the New Mutants, and really actually X-Men in general, the different dark futures that you see predicated by the deaths of Professor Xavier versus Magneto versus, in this case, I mean, Rain's death didn't predicate the dark future, but it was an aspect of it, versus, you know, the actual changes that you see to the team come across as as the result much later on of the death of Doug Ramsey. And that particular trade-off particularly interests me because Doug, when he does die, he's going to sacrifice himself to save Rain. Yeah, it's interesting seeing, you know, these two hearts of the team, sort of the moral center and the emotional center, and just how much each of them matters to the team's psychology and the team's interaction and the team's purpose. Yeah, so meanwhile, everyone's dead or off-world, except for Sam and Danny and, very pertinently, Lila Cheney, who has arranged to transport the last of the surviving mutants on Earth off to her Dyson Sphere across the galaxy. Yeah, that's sort of been their their refuge because they know they can't beat the Sentinel. So they're like, all right, well, let's at least run very, very far away. And at this point, Lila's actually been captured by the Sentinel. She is the bait in a trap designed to get these remaining revolutionaries, Sam and Danny, caught. Spoiler, she's totally not. It turns out it's actually essential disguised as her. They manage to spring the trap without getting caught, and they're about to teleport away. The New Mutants ask, you know, if they can come with them. But Sam and Danny say, no, you've got to stay because Ilyana's going to come pick you up. Right. Because they realize, you know, no matter what they do, even if they burn out the sun itself, the Sentinels are going to eventually find that Dyson Sphere. They're going to keep working forever. And so this future is completely doomed. So the only real option is for the young new mutants to get out of here, knowing what's going to happen, and change the past so it never recurs. And that's a running motif, because the other half of the team is going to be in another dark future next episode. And again, this isn't Days of Future Past. This is part of why this actually feels like a cold run for Excalibur to me. Because this is the new mutants interacting with futures they can't change, overwhelmingly. Right. And I always love that story trope, the idea that there's a future that's so dark that there's so much desperation that the only real option is to undo it, to overwrite all of the people that live there and erase that reality. Oh man, yeah, that desperation, that fighting to destroy your world so that a better one can have a chance is one of my favorite, favorite X-Men alternate storyline tropes. You see it here, you see it in Age of Apocalypse, you see it in Age of X, and that doomed heroism in the face of the inevitable God, I love that. I feel like that's one of the definitive motifs of the X-Men, and it's one of my favorites. Yeah, so this group of new mutants, they stick around and basically wait for Ilyana, hoping that she'll somehow find them, that she's somehow okay. Meanwhile, further ahead in a different future, Ashes of the Soul. Right. New Mutants number 49. This is where we see the rest of the team. We've got Brett Blevins on the art for this one, and he is an artist who is hit and miss for me. He's very, very cartoony, and that can feel very much at odds with the tone of the book. I find I like him a lot on this one, and in general, I find that I like him more on one-shots than I do as the ongoing series artist. And he's actually going to become the ongoing New Mutant series artist, which, you know, your tastes will tell you whether that's a good thing or not. He's not bad, but it can be a jarring pairing with the narrative. In this story, though, I think he really fits, and I don't remember who's inking him this issue, but it's a good pair. This is Earth 87,050. This is a different Earth from the previous universe, and they are further ahead in the future. And here. Instead of a wasteland, we first see Doug and Warlock skateboarding back to the future style 
Doug riding Warlock like a skateboard through a flying techno-utopia of air cars. They have been vandalizing and they are being chased by cops who are wearing what look like New Mutants uniforms. Yeah, and we quickly find out that these are called Arbitrators, and they're basically the police force of New York City, which is now so big it's just called The City. Is this the first mutant supremacist future we've seen? You know, I think it may actually be. So I think things like Age of Apocalypse and House of M might all kind of owe their premise to this very issue. Yeah, I feel like there might have been another one, but this is definitely one of the first ones we've spent a lot of time in. This is specifically a future where Charles Xavier was murdered by federal troops and Magneto, in alliance with the Hellfire Club, took over and basically became the father of a mutant supremacist society. Yeah, essentially there was a war between the humans and the mutants. The mutants won, and so now they all live uptown, which is this beautiful techno-utopia. The humans live downtown, which is not great. And so one of the first things we see is Doug actually vandalizing a giant building with words, humans are people too. It's very Midgar. Yeah, it actually does kind of remind me of Midgar from FF7. With, the, with the multiple physical tears. Uh-huh. Or Minas Tirith, for that matter. Okay. Yeah, so we learn in captions about the future, like the stuff that you were just saying, Rachel, about how things happened here. And what we see is outside the Xavier Institute, this giant garden, the Heroes Plaza, and Danielle Moonstar is just in disguises looking around, looking at herself, the statue of her as a hero. Yeah, the New Mutants are looking at their own memorial statues. Not all of the New Mutants, though, because again, we've got a limited group here. This is four of the five who were not in the other future. So we've got Doug, Warlock, Danny, and Sam. And Ilyana is still MIA. We'll get to her next issue. These guys find and quickly joined up with the human resistance, which is led by a possibly recognizable badass little old lady. Yeah, they meet up with her as they're doing some, you know, rebel stuff against the arbitrators helping out humans. And while they don't recognize her, they recognize her powers. She is a grown-up Katie Power with the powers of the full power pack, and she has organized around her a team of young mutants who are against the standing social order, who help out the humans, and who are bent on overthrowing the autocratic government. The new mutants join up with these guys, but they very quickly end up captured by the leaders of the society, who turn out to be two of their own. Yeah, we see the chief arbitrator in shadow a little bit, but it's pretty clear who this guy is. It is a late middle-aged Roberto da Costa. It's clear on the cover because it says, you know, one of the new mutants will turn against the others and they've got a silhouette. But when you've got a group, one of whose powers involves turning into a silhouette, like the shadowy silhouette is not actually as mysterious as it might otherwise be. Yeah, it's not a, a gigantic reveal. But it is fascinating seeing Sunspot and, as it turns out, Magma being basically the mutant supremacist leaders of this horribly unjust society. It's sad and dark and disturbing. And also really credible. Like, for me, this is a really solidly obvious might have been. Like, this is actually very much for me like the Summers Brothers in Age of Apocalypse. Like, this is totally an arc I could see them having taken under different circumstances. Exactly. It is totally believable. Because, I mean, especially Bobby, because he's got the sense of entitlement based on heroism, but also just based on his abilities. Mm -hmm. And I could see him very easily translating that idealism into the ideology that runs this particular society. It's something we've seen him flirt with even in main continuity. I mean, he was one of the Lord Cardinals of the Hellfire Club for years and years, and he's using them primarily for good at this point, but recently he just straight up bought AIM. Yes, he did, which is a great plot development, Yeah, it's a lot of fun, but, you know, it's got the potential for some interesting corners to Mm -hmm. be turned. And Bobby and Amara believe strongly that they have done right, that they are doing the right thing, that what they are doing is for the good of society and for the good of mutant kind and for the good of humanity. Yeah. And the language they use here is definitely deliberate. I mean, I enjoy what Bobby tells the New Mutants about this as he has them all imprisoned. After our victory, many wanted the surviving humans to suffer the fate they'd planned for us. But we Lord's Cardinal decided instead to be merciful. We provided them a place to live. Not here, of course. But that's because they don't want to associate with us any more than we do with them. They're much better off among their own kind. We built the city for ourselves. Why should we share the fruits of our powers and our labor? They have downtown. If they live in squalor, it's by their choice. They could prosper if they wanted. But they'd rather despoil their homes and then blame us for their misery. Wow, so I really, really, really love it when, like, Reaganomics get just straight up put in the mouth of a dark future despot. I feel like that is kind of their ideal. 
I would, I would agree. Yeah. It's a criticism of that. I think it's also uh, a criticism of the way not just social class, but also race was handled, especially in the 80s and certainly to a very large degree still today. Right. I mean, it's a very, very elegant demolition by example of a very, very blind kind of rhetoric about social mobility. And it's really interesting, too, that it's coming from Bobby, whose family, whose father very specifically started out very poor and is now extremely, extremely wealthy. I'm going to go on a tangent here and say that Bobby has grown up steeped in a very specific myth of accessible social mobility based on something that is an exception to an overwhelming status quo and an overwhelming and oppressive status quo. And that what he's spouting here is what happens when that is translated into policy. Yeah, you end up with a horrible, horrible utopia. And speaking of horrible things, poor Magneto is still having a terrible day or a terrible night in this case. He's just sitting and eating ice cream in front of the TV. Uh, no, he is having this beautiful dream of a beautiful day. He's just rhapsodizing about it. And then his dream sort of zooms out and you realize he's in a firing line with his family in the Holocaust as they are all gunned down. And his powers manifest just in time to divert the bullets a little bit to save his life. But he nonetheless is shoveled into a mass grave with them. True story. There is literally no such thing as a happy Magneto flashback. There really isn't. And I believe this is actually the first time we've seen anything this explicit about his actual past in the Holocaust. We've heard it referenced before, but seeing this in our faces like this is new. Have we? I could have sworn that we've seen at least one explicit flashback to it before, and I bet someone is going to unmatchly us about this. It's quite possible, but it's dark. And so he wakes up, you know, obviously that's the kind of dream that does wake you up, pours himself a drink. He's just tortured, thinking, what do I do? I have to prevent this sort of thing from happening again. Mutants are in terrible shape. My students are in danger. Is allying with the Hellfire Club the only option? And of course, in the meantime, you know, and the He doesn't pages, have time to think because Mulder just keeps calling. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're certainly seeing the consequences of that alliance, at least indirectly. Well, the consequences of that alliance in one very specific branch of events. Because this isn't just Magneto allies with the Hellfire Club and a bunch of other things happen. And then that's this feature. I mean, there's not a version of the future, for example, that we see where Magneto allies with the Hellfire Club, but Xavier doesn't get assassinated. That's true. But regardless, back in this future, Sunspot, older Sunspot, is saying what he's going to do, which is, all right, so you kids refuse to listen. I'm just going to use some of my arbitrator's powers to change your minds, and then you will understand because I will have telepathically altered your take on this. Now, when we were talking about this earlier, you said that that seemed super extreme to you, and it actually does not to me. I mean, we're in our 30s, and I'm thinking of the way people our age, but especially people our parents' age, talk about themselves as teenagers. And even talking about myself as a teenager, like imagine yourself 20 years from now, 30 years from now, with all of that life and lived experience and the things you know, the things you've learned, believing really strongly in a social order and an establishment that you've become part of. I'm thinking of our equivalent of the New Mutants. And all I can think of is, is like the D&D group from high school. <laughs> so like it's like Brett and Sam and Kyle and me. We all show up and we're like, no, this is wrong. Believe us. And I mean, you look at us and you're like, yeah, you know what? You're all kind of dumbasses. I remember being one of you. I know how far I have come from there. No, like like you, you want to do the whack-a-mole thing and just be like, nope, 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 because you have retconned who you were then based on who you've become. You know, that there's been so much value and so much consideration added that there couldn't have been anything back then. You, obviously, you just didn't know anything back then. And so he's wrong, but I could very easily see someone like that train of thought makes a scary lot of rhetorical sense to me just based on the way I hear people talking about themselves as teenagers. You know, that actually is a very astute observation. I think that does explain in some ways the tendency of people to become more conservative as they age. So can we make like a vow that if either of our teenage selves like shows up and one of us is the dictator of a country, we won't mind wipe them? Uh, yes, check. All right. All right. Fist bump. Bam. Blow Dude. it up. Okay. Uh, so yes, anyway. The New Mutants do manage to break out along with Katie Power, and they choose to let her escape. They're like, hey, you know what you're doing fixing this this future. We wouldn't. Get out there. We're going to wait, and maybe Ilyana will save us. Yeah, and this is your world, not ours. You need to say that we'll do what we can in the past if we can get back to the past, which brings us to New Mutants number 50 and Ilyana. Yeah, this is a double-sized issue. It's a number 50, so, you know, that makes sense. Now, the rest of her team is split between two dark futures. Ilyana herself has been, as it turns out, stuck in limbo, which has been overwhelmingly infected with Megas' trance mode virus. Yeah, all the demons are now all techno-organic, just like Warlock and Megas. 
So whenever they touch her, she starts to get infected. She can purge it with a soul sword, and then that part of her body is covered with soul armor more and more. Specifically, not only has Limbo been overrun, but Limbo has been overrun with the aid of an internal traitor. That is the demon Sim. This is one of Belasco's minions who became one of Liana's minions and who is now outright rebelling. He has allied with Magus. Magus has basically told him, if you let me take over Limbo, I will then give it to you. Right. And so this is not going well. She doesn't know what she's going to do because she's losing ground. She's losing this battle. Man, this setup, specifically right here, the stuff with the techno, with Magus and Limbo, literally everything we read in any X book at this point for me feels like I can see the lower foundation levels and groundwork and the first struts being put in of the edifice that's going to be Inferno. Oh, yeah. This is the ground level of that. And it's a little bit terrifying knowing what's coming, knowing what all these Legos are eventually going to build. Yeah. Keep track of this particular thread because it is going to grow. It is going to spin into something significant. Limbo is being overrun. The virus is replicating faster than Ilyana can stop it. And finally, what she does is channel all of her magic through her soul sword and just stab it into the ground. And it appears to rip the realm apart. Yes. And now we cut very, very far away out to, you know, space. Meanwhile, in a space bar. Yes, meanwhile, in, you know, the Maz Eisley equivalent. Every transition. Meanwhile, in a bar in space. Uh-huh. Again, Justice League understands this. It totally does. We see some characters we haven't seen in a while. And that would be everyone's very favorite swing in space pirates, the Star Jammers, currently joined by the one and only Charles Xavier, the dethroned Empress Lalandra, and binary Carol Danvers, who currently has the power of at least one star. They're off doing very Firefly-esque stuff, you know, getting supplies, avoiding bounty hunters, when all of a sudden Xavier sees Ilyana being auctioned off as a slave at the other side of the bar. Well, first he gets a psychic blast from her, which is surprising because he's not usually able to read her mind. He, with the aid of the Starjammers, is able to free her from the slave auction, effectively upsetting the business the Starjammers were attempting to conduct, but what's new there? Mm-hmm. And gets her back to the ship, where it's determined that A, she's just sort of shown up there spontaneously, but B, she is specifically just Ilyana, without her magic, without the soul sword, and without the arcane taint that marked her previously and that had kept Professor Xavier previously out of her head. Right. He's telling everyone about this. This Ilyana Rasputin may be more pleasant and indeed normal-seeming than magic, but it is only part of her total being, a shadow of her true self. To which Ilyana responds, I figured this was too good to be true. I hoped I'd simply gotten better, cast the dark magical side of me out when I blasted loose from limbo. Is that what you want, child? It's what everyone else wants. My big brother Peter, he'd be overjoyed to see me like this. And I really wanted to be happy, except that I miss my magic, so I'm scared of it, but I need it. Right now I'm human again, the girl I would have been if not for Belasco, only I feel empty, more dead than alive. And man, that is so sad. You know, I keep on coming back to balance as a theme for Liana, and I love this issue and I love this conversation so much. They are so important to me because her story, the nature of the soul sword, the nature of her magic, is all about those powers being neutral forces, being shaped by her will, and being extensions of her. And what we get made explicit here is that they're part of her. They're part of who she's become. And you know, that's been shaped by trauma and it's been shaped by stuff that's been hard and difficult and terrible, but it's her. And when you take it away, she's not a whole person. Yeah. And I love that Claremont actually makes that explicit because I think it's really important and I think it's something that gets forgotten sometimes in representations of the character. It's, it's been touched on and it's been touched on very, very well since. But it goes back and forth. And this is the version of at least this era of Ileana that I really love. The one who is complex and self-contradictory, but whole. Absolutely. And so she starts to realize, well, I'm the only one that can fix this. Limbo is how I can get to my friends to bring them back. But Limbo's infected. What do I do? And Xavier says, hey, we got your back. So Xavier, Ileana, Lalandra, and Carol all suit up and head to Limbo. And Limbo looks fine. It's peaceful. It's green. And the soul sword is planted in the ground. And the second that Ileana pulls it out, the techno-organic virus starts spreading again. And Sim comes back. She can't stop him. She can't cut him down. All she can do is basically push him back for a bit. And it's the longer that the sword is out, the more the corruption creeps in. She can either devote all of her energy to taking Limbo back, or she can leave the sword there and go save her friends. But she can't do both. Right. And so she asks Professor Xavier what to do. He says, hey, this needs to be your decision. And she says, all right. We leave the sword, we find the new mutants, we make this right. 
they go through time and space. Her power is stabilized by Xavier's telepathy, which is something he does a lot of with the New Mutants. Yeah, throughout this issue, throughout the ending fight, this is basically Xavier powers up the New Mutants one by one, and that's how they take out every big bad. He gets the group from Roberto's dark future first, the mutant supremacist future he gives evil Roberto a talking to, gets that group out goes and gets the ones who are fighting the Sentinels and takes them back to the Starjammer where Magus follows and they finally confront him at a nearby planet. Yeah, and Magus is huge. He is the horizon. He is the landscape. This planet is just being crushed under him. I mean, this is an entity we've seen rip stars in half, and he is that scary. Everything that's adorable about Warlock, everything that's all cartoony and inchoate and protean about Warlock, with Magus, it is horrifying. It is overwhelming. It is freaking like Cyclopean if you want to get all Lovecraft about it. And he's on a scale, like he's enormous, like Shadow of the Technarch. Right. It's seriously like Shadow of the Colossus. I mean, they decide to confront him. You know, there are these impossible odds. They're fighting a god, essentially. And they all, you know, in turn use their powers helped by Xavier to distract him to actually get onto his form. And what ends up turning the tide of the battle is Warlock himself, who finds his courage not just to lie down and die, which is what he's been trying to do this entire time to save his friends, but to confront his father, to fight, to trust his teammates, to be there by his side as he does so. And he and Cypher manage to, well, Rachel, you could probably describe it better than me. They hack Megas. Yeah, they hack the planet, sort of. Well, okay, they hack Magus. He's planet-sized. He is planet-sized. They hack the planet-sized Magus. And essentially, Doug starts to understand, using Warlock's technological interfaces, his techno-organic interfaces with his father, how Magus works. He learns that language and he rewrites it. He de-ages Magus down to an infant, to when he was in the Technarch crash that he was born in, and thus neutralizes him without killing him. Oh, see, this takes me back to Doug and Dark Futures and What Ifs, and this, more than anything else, makes me so sad that Doug was not around for Days of Future yet to come. Yeah. Because that is the Dark Future that is saved with semantics, and, like, that should have been Doug Ramsey's moment. That should have been him. Speaking of characters getting their moments, I do want to go back for just a bit here to Magma. We mentioned at the beginning that she has not been interesting. I feel like this arc really gives her a voice for the first time, and what that voice is is her being archaic and defiant and passionate. Early on when she's fighting Sentinels, My fires blaze as hot as the world's heart, Roberto. This may be our last stand, honored comrades, but by Mars it shall be a glorious one. And here, after Sam expresses concern about her being so exposed to fighting Magus, To live is to risk being hurt, sweet friend, and all things die. Why not at a moment of one's own choosing, fighting for a noble cause? And she just keeps doing this. Like, basically everything she says is, we may die this moment, but I'm going to be a total metal badass. And I love her for it. Yeah, metal album cover magma is the best magma. And this culminates in all of the New Mutants, and especially Warlock basically telling Xavier, you are the father we never had. And I kind of want this to just end with a cut back to Magneto, who's looking for a mug to drink his coffee out of, and he finds a world's best dad mug again, he pours his coffee in it, and it just shatters. Because, like, I'm trying to think of something more soul-crushing. I feel so bad for Magneto in this arc, because it's like he's been working so hard, he's been trying so hard to give these kids a chance, to let them stand on their own, to find a balance between protecting them and letting them be people and really approach them on their own terms. Xavier shows up, is all paternalistic, and they're all like, Charles Xavier, you're the best, plus one of the dark futures they went to was partially triggered by Magneto, so they're gonna come back and they're gonna be like, you're not our real dad. It's really unfortunate. At the same time, though, I mean, if you can ignore that for a moment, which I agree is hard, then the last scene as Warlock finally gets over this trauma that's been haunting him for literally his entire life at this point is pretty touching. Yeah, you know, Doug basically says, you know, I'm sorry about the mess with your dad, and Warlock responds, Statement error, self-soul friend, Cypher Doug. Reference self-Magus relationship is offered for Spring Sire. Concession that description is biologically accurate self-system prime progenitor Magus. But self would not have survived so long, much less triumphed had self not learned so much from interfacing with self-friends new mutants, and especially self-friend teacher Xavier. Self requests honor of considering teacher as self's true sire, if not of self's form, then of self's heart and spirit. And Xavier responds, Warlock, dear son, the honor is mine. Warlock, no, no, you don't want Charles Xavier as a father. A teacher would be okay, but you don't want him to be your dad. It's still super charming, He's like a gerbil. He basically eats his own young. That's a very vivid mental image. Isn't it? And so that's this arc of New Mutants. You know, they're back in touch with Xavier. Magus is finally defeated. They're finally all back together again. I really enjoy this arc. It is just so weird and unpredictable and exactly what I want out of New Mutants. So here's the remarkable thing. Other than the fight with Magus, remarkably little happens. Like, they travel to a lot of pasts and futures that they don't really alter. 
This is all about the New Mutants, you know, growing up as characters and learning valuable lessons about themselves. And again, it feels like a low-stakes sketch for the much higher-stakes cross-time caper that will later hit next caliber. At the same time, it feels like adolescence. It's not being able to affect things as much as you would like, but growing into more of the person who later will be able to, to having to learn that patience and learn that prudence. And I really enjoy that. You may enjoy that, but our listeners have questions, which we are compelled to answer. So, a compelled infidel asks on Tumblr, why is Shan's codename Karma? It doesn't really seem to fit her powers, and she's not a member of any of the faiths that explicitly believe in the concept of karma, so why did she choose it? Did she even choose it? Is there an incontinuity reason for her codename? Is there a real-world explanation? Excellent question, and one without a great answer. So, Shan chooses the name Karma at the end of her first appearance, which was Marvel Team Up number 100, and she doesn't explain why she chooses it, although Mr. Fantastic does close the issue by kind of ruminating on the significance of the word. I've been thinking a lot about this because why her codename feels so off to me. And I feel like if it were on a white American character or a British character, I would find it less irritating. But Shan feels like an Orientalist mashup to me a lot of the time. Like she's a Christian Vietnamese character with a Taoist symbol on her costume. And in her first appearance, she and her brother both have uniforms with yin-yangs on them. There's also one on her graduation costume. And a codename that refers to a Buddhist concept. And that particular combination strikes me as kind of remarkably tone deaf. Yeah, and I mean, it would be one thing if there was even some kind of thematic significance, like if it had to do with her personality, but it really doesn't either. I am going to say I could reasonably believe that she is just abstractly familiar with the concept of karma because culturally it's been around and appropriated by and run through cultures that she has been in contact with and part of, and perhaps she feels some personal connection to it. But as far as I know, that's never actually been explored in more depth than canon. She's just karma. She is. Yeah, so kind of weird. Okay, so a sword without a hilt asks on Tumblr, Liliana's soul sword confuses me. In the Magic miniseries, it's a concentrated part of her soul, like Storm's acorn, making it personal to her. So in Excalibur, they make a big deal about Kitty being one of the few who can use it. But then not long after, Doom is waving it around. Then Alice writes that it's made of soul steel, and there can only be one soul steel weapon. Then in Claremont's Nightcrawler, it's some kind of ancient inherited weapon thing. And there's inconsistency in what it actually can damage. Yeah, okay, so the Soul Sword is incredibly narratively mutable, as you've just demonstrated. Its nature changes basically according to the demands of the story. Yes, there is more than one Soul Weapon. Ilyana has a Soul Sword, Pixie has a Soul Dagger. There have been others as well. The Soul Sword, Ilyana's tends to be referred to with the definite article as the, the, soul, the soul Sword more than the others. But in general, the rules governing the Soul Swords how many there are, how many there can be, who gets to wield them, and what power wielding them conveys are wildly inconsistent. And I would say that the best way to deal with those things as a reader is to just take it story by story and utterly ignore prior precedents, which is what most of the writers have done. Yeah, that being said, A Sword Without a Hilt, I do remember when I was reading Ellis's run on Excalibur as it was coming out, this seriously bothered me as well, so you are totally not alone. Yeah, I feel like Ellis's Excalibur run hangs on the rule of cool perhaps more heavily than a lot of others do. There's a lot in there that clashes with prior canon. There is. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and one of the rewards that comes with certain levels of support is being thanked by us, or rather us portraying certain characters or concepts. So, angry narrator, take it away. You told yourself that you acted in the best interest of mutant kind, Ellie Blagden, but you were wrong. And your blindness to the truth will be the undoing of your empire and your world. I believe I am turning it over now to Sexy Dracula. Through time and space they travel, these new mutants. Passions running hot, blood coursing through their young veins. And yet so little talk of love, of desire. When I, Dracula, was young, I made the most of my youth. You, Mike Monahan, know as well of the pleasures of the flesh, of sweet mortality and the sharp sting of wanting. You would not be so blinded by heroics as to ignore the beating hearts and rushing blood of those around you, nor would Dracula. All right, sexy Dracula. Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of Rachel and Miles Explain the X-Men come out every Sunday on iTunes, on Stitcher, and at rachelandmiles.com. Check out rachelandmiles.com for all kinds of extra content, episode companion posts, essays, fan art, X-Men evolution recaps, and much, much more. Our show is completely listener-supported and ad-free and is made possible by our amazing Patreon subscribers. If you'd like to become a subscriber and you're not already, please check out the link at the top of rachelandmiles.com. 
Next week, the X-Men start to recover from the mutant massacre as Malice makes herself known. Madeline Pryor returns. And we meet the three most significant X-antagonists ever. Crimson Commando, Stonewall, and Super Saber. You know, those guys. Those guys.